Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Uh, Has anybody enjoyed the sunshine and the weather and the lack of snow lately? Uh, Man, that was kind of, a lot of people were really happy about that. If you know anything about me, I'm a little sad that winter is ending and that it is not snowing. Darwin actually told me I needed to be careful about saying that because I might get shot. Uh, And I think he was talking about my wife because my wife is so over winter. She is ready for the snow to melt and the flowers to bloom and it to be summer. And uh, I like the summer, I like the springtime, I like, you know, this nice weather, but uh, if I am 100% honest, I am a powder junkie. Uh, that sounds, uh, I guess that would come. <laughs> Sound bites from Pastor Nate, let's put those out on the internet. <laughs> uh, I love the snow. Uh, one of the things that I love about the snow, though, is uh, the things that I get to do with my family and Uh, I love to snowboard, I love to snowmobile, but this year in particular, I've had some major advancements in the fun that I get to have with my kids. So my son Phineas is five years old, and he's right at that age where he's starting to like develop those motor skills where he's able to do things that are fun. And so, you know, when you have kids, like I love, I love all of my kids, but my younger son Simeon can't ride a snowmobile yet. And it probably wouldn't be like wise for me to throw a two-year-old on a snowboard and just send him down a mountain, but a five-year-old, completely okay. <laughs> and so uh, we're having a lot of fun together. We started this thing where my son, if uh, he reads a book, he gets a little pom-pom and he can put it in a jar. And whenever he fills up the jar, so it, it's dependent on how many books he reads, he gets to choose a fun thing to do. And so this week was the first time that he filled up his jar full of pom-poms, and he was just ecstatic because there was still snow on the mountain, and Wolf Creek was still open. He's like, Dad, I filled up my jar before, uh, before the, the season ended at the ski area. Can we go snowboarding again, Dad? And that's what he chose for his big special to-do thing after reading all of his books. And it's been a lot of fun. Uh, to uh, watch him snowboard and, and see him learn some things. And uh, I, I really wanted to show this video. If you want to throw this up there, Aaron. <laughs> He's always chewing on his glove, like 100% of the time. That was the number one thing he did yesterday. And he's just kind of cruising. He's like, yeah, I'm cool. And then, boom! How many of you guys have done that? Please, please, please tell me. There's a good number of you that have caught an edge on a snowboard. And uh, it's been a number of years since I've caught an edge like that. I've hit trees. I've fallen off of cliffs. But just to catch an edge like that, I feel like I'm... I have arrived at like intermediate level of snowboarding because I'm not catching edges anymore. Um, But guys, honestly, I'm not a great snowboarding teacher. My son is just kind of 
naturally skilled, I think. I've taught two people how to snowboard. One of them is Phineas, and the other one is Aaron, who's doing stuff in the back, uh, doing our words right now. And I, I was fortunate because both of these guys just crushed it their first time on a snowboard. And uh, both of their, in fact, Aaron, the first time that I ever took him up to Wolf Creek, he was doing the waterfall area by the end of the day. And so uh, it was awesome. He crushed it. If you guys don't know what that is, if you're not from here, it's a, it's a fun part of Wolf Creek. And you should go check it out. Um, I'm not a good teacher, though. Uh, the extent of my teaching is uh, I take them, and Aaron can testify to this. What I did was I took you to the top of the mountain and said, get off the lift. You got off the lift. You didn't even fall, man. It was awesome. And we got you strapped in, and I said, now just point your board where you want to go, and let's go. That's how I learned how to snowboard. You know, there wasn't really any kind of like, let's learn how to stop and go from our heel edge to our toe edge. It was really just like, Either you're going to get it or you're not, because I know I'm not the guy to teach you. Now, please, uh, there, we have snowboard instructors here uh, that know how to teach people at the ski area. I'm sure this is not how they do it, right? No? But I, wanna, I, want, to, I want to advocate. I'm two for two right now, and so I feel like I've got a method, and I could write a book and maybe make some money off of this, because evidently it's working. My son uh, bombed Treasure Face the other day, which is awesome. He had no idea what that meant. He just heard me use that language and said, Dad, can we bomb the face? I said, sure, son. Nothing would make me prouder than that as a father. Did he fall like he did there? Yes, but he did it, and I was, it was awesome. It was really cool. The only point, uh, and the whole point of this is, the only kind of solid advice that I think is uh, applicable when I'm teaching somebody how to snowboard or even uh, snowmobiling, it kind of translates as well, was the fact that you need to be able to look where you want to go. And uh, for my son here in particular, one of the things that I worked on him up at the ski area was, hey, son, I want you to point your snowboard where you want to go, but I also want you to look to where you want to go. And I want you to point actually to where you want to go. And so, because he would constantly be finding himself, uh, yesterday when we wound up uh, going down this black run that we weren't supposed to go on, <laughs> he had moved off the catwalk um, because he just wasn't paying attention. He had his, like, glove in his mouth and was just kind of sucking on it and uh, <laughs> doing his own thing. He's five. And he had gotten off the trail to the place where he could not get back on the trail. In fact, I was like, son, I want you to point where you want to go. I want you to point where you want to go. And he started freaking out, and he went off of the side of the, the catwalk because that's where he was looking, and it was scary, and he wound up going down there. And instead of uh, staying on the catwalk and pointing and looking at the catwalk, he was terrified about what was beneath him and went down that. And he did great. It was awesome. But there was at one point in time where he was down below the catwalk, and he was pointing up at me. <laughs> And he's like, I'm not going up, Dad. <laughs> it's like, the analogy breaks down somewhere, but you're, you're tracking with me, right? And the reality of it is, friends, uh, there's this principle of you will go where your gaze is fixed. It's, this, it's true when you're driving, is it not? Uh, I know for sure it's true when I'm snowmobiling. 
I, I've learned how to snowmobile, and I'm definitely at the beginner level there this last year and a little bit last year. And uh, there's something terrifying about riding like an 850 like cc engine up uh, like a steep avalanche chute or something like that. And you're like, oh, I don't want to go there. That's a cliff. That's a tree. Uh, what do I do? And it's always racing through my mind thinking, I don't want to go there, and I don't want to go there. And my mind automatically navigates to those places, and I begin to fixate on this particular tree. And the next thing you know, I'm in the tree well calling Darwin over the radio, hey, I need some help, I'm stuck. Uh, that's, that's kind of how it boils down. And in life, the same thing is true. If you know me, I like trees. I like to, uh, I like trees. That... <laughs> Another soundbite, just throw that... Throw that in my bio. It's like, I'm a powder junkie and I like trees. Some people are going to understand that and they're going to really resonate with that. And then there are going to be people that are like from Arizona and be like, what is he talking about? Um, I like to ride snowboards in the trees and I like really tight trees. And uh, most of the time uh, I can make it through there. In fact, my wife got me a helmet a couple years ago. And my favorite thing about the helmet now is I can put my head down and it kind of takes the branches in the head and I can make it through. Right, Stephen? I like to go through some trees, don't I? <laughs> Most of the time there's a gap in between the trees and I can navigate and make my way through. Sometimes there's not and then that's a whole different story. But the thing about navigating trees, whether you're skiing or snowboarding or something like that, is I have my mind and I have my gaze fixated on the gap through the trees, not the tree itself. Otherwise, I hit the tree. You guys are getting where this is going, right? I, I've probably exhausted this to death, but I, I just want you to know, and I love talking about snowboarding. I love talking about snowmobiling. It's a lot of fun. The same is true for us spiritually. No one winds up accidentally following Jesus. I need you to understand this. No one accidentally follows Jesus along the narrow path of self-sacrifice. If our gaze is fixed on Jesus, we are going to wind up at Jesus' feet. If our attention is given primarily to inferior things and, and other loves, we're going to wind up going down a different path, and we're not going to someday just wake up and find ourselves still serving Jesus. I think this is the mentality that a lot of people have. They say, you know what, I said yes to Jesus when I was a teenager or I filled out a card or I went to this service and I had this one emotional experience with the Lord at this one particular moment in time and then years and decades go by and their life is a complete mess and it's a complete travesty and they blame God saying, you know what, no, I tried the whole Jesus thing once but they never kept their gaze fixated on him. They never continued with intentionality down the road of following Jesus. And we left to wonder why they aren't still sitting at Jesus' feet. I'm talking about what keeps us in this thing for the long haul. How do we finish well? How do we say yes to Jesus at one moment in time and then years and decades from now still find ourselves following Jesus closely? Because that is what I measure success as. I'm not interested, friends, in you having an emotional experience and giving Jesus a high five and saying, you know what, I love the Lord and having it all be good. That's great. I love those moments. I'm excited that we're doing baptisms. Colin, man, I don't know where you're sitting. Man, that's awesome, dude. What you did today is great, and it's awesome, and I'm going to celebrate with you. 
but it means nothing if not 10, 20, 30 years from now, you're still following Jesus as closely as you are today. In fact, I believe this, friends. You should be more passionate and in love with Jesus today than the day you first said yes to him. I believe you can grow in love with Jesus more on a consistent basis, day in and day out. I want to be 70 years old. I want to be 80 years old, loving Jesus and more passionate about him then than I ever was at any other point in my life. Friends, if you can look back at any part, any, any part of your story, any trajectory of your life and say, you know what? I wish I could go back to when I loved Jesus like that. You are in danger, my friend. I know that we have memories. I know that we have thoughts. And I know that God has done things in our past. And we can, it's easy for us to kind of look backwards and say, you know what? I wish it was like this. Or I wish it was like like that, and I wish I could just go back to, you know, when I was in youth group and I was a teenager and things just seemed so simple and I was so on fire for Jesus if we're going to use that Christianese. The reality of it is, I believe that we can grow in love with Jesus day in and day out. And I want that to be true of my life. And I want to find myself having my gaze so fixated on Jesus that I, I'm not deviating to the left or to the right, but I'm following the way that he's marked out for me. This is actually some of the exact language that the author of Hebrews uses in Hebrews chapter 12, where he instructs us to fix our eyes. Uh, the New King James would say, looking unto Jesus. But I'm going to read in verse 1 and 2, and this is going to be primarily where we are today. So if you guys want to turn there in your Bibles with me, if not, we'll put it up on the screen. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is one of my favorite passages and verses in all of scripture. And and, and there's so much to unpack here, but I'm going to keep it simple today um, because we, we still have a couple more things to do in service. And I know that there's an egg hunt afterward that I'm sure that all of you are super excited for. Nobody, was there an age cap on the egg hunt? Four kids. I'm a child of God. They're hidden, they're hidden, in, my, they're hidden in my yard, so I guarantee you we'll be finding eggs long after this. I think we found one like six months later at one point in time. No, but if we're, if we're looking at this passage of scripture and we're looking at what God's doing here, I think it's important to note that we are in a race. Uh, Scripture often uses this analogy. Paul, who we don't know if he wrote Hebrews or not. That's why I always say the author of Hebrews. But uh, Paul was also an apostle, and he loved to use this analogy of the race. In fact, when he was writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he talks about how he he has fought the good fight of faith, and he has finished the race. He's come to the end. He's come to the conclusion. And the author here, he compares following Jesus to running a race. I don't know about you guys, but 
this whole mentality that has recently entered in about uh, everyone's a winner uh, kind, of a, kind of a thing just irks me beyond belief. <laughs> Most of you probably are familiar that I'm a little bit competitive. Some of you guys have played Ultimate Frisbee with me. Maybe you've played a board game with me. Um, guys, I want to win. <laughs> if there's a game and it's like competitive, I'm going to play it as if I'm going to win. I don't, I don't get the whole idea of like, let's just play to have fun. It's not how I'm geared. I've never been able to do that. If we're going to play Frisbee, I'm not having fun unless we're winning and stomping the other team. I've never just had fun going out and running and beating myself up and like passing out and trying to win and then coming home and losing. In fact, my wife often has to give me pep talks. I realize this is probably a character flaw and I should just be able to enjoy getting out and having a good time, but I've got to win. It just makes no sense to me why people would, would do anything if they weren't going to win. <laughs> like, why do people write, like, John... I love you. You're awesome. And, and I know that you ride bikes. And you're, you're like a crazy man. And you're going to do the, the iron horse again and ride over like four mountain passes or something like that. At one point in time, I thought I might do it with you. But it doesn't make any sense unless you're going to win. Like, I could drive a car and see the same scenery. Like, I want to win. I get it's like some sort of personal accomplishment. But I, I think realistically, and I'm picking on you here just because I know that there is certain validity that comes when you finish that race, right? It's one thing if you were to do all this training and you gave up and you stopped on Colbank Pass and you didn't finish, right? Or is it, yeah, Colbank and then Mullis, right? That there's something that, that comes with, you know, just saying, you know what, I finished. I finished this race. And I, I, need, to, I need you to understand here when we're talking about serving Jesus, when we're talking about following Jesus, there is, there is only one thing that matters, and it's that if you cross that finish line, that you're still in the race. So many friends, so many people that I've known, they started this thing of following Jesus. You know what? They've said, hey, this idea sounds pretty good, and they've only been halfway committed to the cause. You know, they're not willing to endure. They're not willing to persevere. So they casually start running, and they casually start doing this thing because, you know, maybe there's a bunch of people at the starting point, and they're like, yeah, this is kind of the cool, the popular thing to do. Let's do this Jesus thing. And then it begins to get difficult, and people start straggling behind and people just start tapping out and giving up. And at the very end, it seems like there are very few people that are still crossing that finish line. I think of friends that I went to ministry school with that heard the same sermons, that did the same things as me, that, that saw the same miracles, that are not following Jesus today because they've tapped out of the race. Can I tell you, no one who is running a race with intention of finishing that race is going to run passively. It requires effort. It requires commitment. It requires some grit and some tenacity to get through the hard seasons, right? I, I know that there's, the runners talk about a wall, right? And, and you can hit this wall, and I'm never going to run a race. I ran a 5K like one time in my life. Not fun, for me, because I probably knew I couldn't win at it, and so I was going to find something that I was 
maybe semi-capable of doing something good at. But I know, uh, I know that there's hard points in a race. I know that there are, are moments where it feels like giving up, and people talk about if you can just press through those moments, if you can press through those hardships, I believe you can come out on the other side, and sometimes they talk about it as a second wind or something like that. But this, this word here, it says, let us run with perseverance. With perseverance. The, the New King James says, let us run with endurance. The word that's used here in the Greek is uh, hupomone. I'm probably mispronouncing that. If you're a Greek scholar, please don't correct me. Um, but that, that, that word hupomone means steadfastness. It's a constancy, a consistency, an endurance or patience. That's how the Strongs would define this word. But it describes the characteristic of a person who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith by even the greatest trials and sufferings. You see, it doesn't mean the kind of patience um, with which we kind of sit down and just accept things as they are. It's not this passive thing where we're kind of just enduring and letting things happen. It actually talks about a passion, a patience, a patience uh, to master difficult things. It's a determination, unhurrying, unhurrying, and yet undelaying, which goes steadily on and refuses to be deflected. Uh, that's how Barclay would say it. He says it is a determination unhurrying and undelaying, which goes steadily on and refuses to be deflected. You see, the book of Hebrews was written to um, the uh, kind of a, the first century church of Jewish Christians that were suffering immense persecution under the Roman Empire. You know, it wasn't just written to uh, the, the kind of the American church in our 21st century where we have a nice building and, and padded seats and we get to have an Easter service like this. This was written to, to, to believers that were literally suffering and dying for what they believed in. It's, uh, the author encourages them here that it is indeed worth it to stay following Jesus. It's indeed worth it to finish the race, to persevere, to endure. And he encourages them that the race is actually worth finishing. And so I think it's interesting here because this passage of scripture tells us that uh, we're to run with perseverance, the race that is marked out for us. Have you guys uh, ever been to like a race course that has things marked off and you know roads are blocked and there's a course that you're supposed to follow? Um, some of you guys are familiar with this. I'm familiar with it from Mario Kart um, because there's, like a, there's a course that you can follow. And my, my boys love playing Mario Kart. But I, I, I noticed this thing uh, recently. Um, I kept losing if I played anybody that was actually good at Mario Kart rather than the computer because I felt like I was going as fast as I could. But in Mario Kart, there's shortcuts. And if you know where they are, you can get off of the track and you can get off on certain places in the game and, and you can get in front of other people because you can get off course and wind up at a different part of the course. But I need to be honest with you, this race that we're running in the Christian faith, there are no shortcuts. There's no loopholes for you to find. There isn't, there isn't a way that we get to shortcut the area of self-denial. There isn't a, a way that we get to shortcut uh, the area of sacrifice 
or generosity or loving your enemy or praying for those that are persecuting you. Those are things that are all part of this race that Jesus invites us to, but he's clearly marked things out. I think a lot of us want to sign up for a race, but we want it to be a free-for-all. You know, we don't want there to be a course. We want to go whatever way we want to go and do it whatever way we want to do. But the reality of it is the Lord has laid out a very specific set of boundaries for us to follow him on. He talks about it as the narrow road or the narrow path. And a lot of us would be like, you know what? No, Jesus, I want to do my own thing. But it's blasphemous and it's insulting to the one that gave it all for us to follow him. The course is clearly marked. There's no shortcuts. There's no loopholes. There's no easy button when it comes to following Jesus. But the first verse here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The author here is referencing back to a previous chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, We know it's commonly described and referred to as the hall of faith. And he mentions some 18 different examples of men and women of great faith who endured. And they were presented to us here in chapter 12 as this great cloud of witnesses. I I need need to remind you here, the, the... The Jews, these Jewish Christians, that's who the book of Hebrews was written to, was Jewish followers of Jesus in the first century, were suffering immense persecution. They were suffering real hardship, real trial. And the author's intent of this book was to remind them that it was still worth it to follow Jesus. And so beginning in Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to read six verses to us, beginning in verse 32, uh, where he talks about this great hall of faith, this great cloud of witnesses. We talk about Moses and Isaac and, and Jacob and, and Rahab, and, and we look at these awesome people, but it goes on here. Uh, I'm skipping over all of them to just pick up in verse 32, and it says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Guys, for for a long time, I think I envisioned these people, Abraham, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, the, the account that we just read here, these martyrs of the faith that suffered real loss and persecution, these heroes of the faith who believed God and believed what he said, talking about them as witnesses. I kind of envision these people watching us like 
our race was some kind of cosmic Super Bowl. Because the way that the language here, it talks about this, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, so therefore we should probably do good and we should run the race well. And I've heard it preached that way. I've heard it interpreted that way. But given the context of the scriptures here, I don't believe it's so much about them witnessing us, them observing the conduct of our lives, them watching our performance. I believe rather a better interpretation and a better reading of this passage of scripture would be that they are actually witnesses to us. It's this Greek word for witness that is exchanged, it's interchanged between witness and martyr. It's actually, the Greek word is martus, and it talks about, uh, when, when it actually says, you will be my witnesses, a lot of the times uh, that, that language is conveyed, you will be martyrs for my sake and for my name. And we look here, and we talk about the suffering and the persecution and the hardship that these people of faith walked through. I believe it's equivalent with that of martyrs, and it says here that they're going to be witnesses to us. I read this and I see it as an example of people that have said yes to Jesus, have walked with Jesus, have suffered for his namesake, and have continued steadfastly on the narrow road as an example. And they serve as witnesses to us that it actually is worth it. It is possible to see this thing through through the long haul. I think of dear friends and family members that I've had that have, have gone before me that have said yes to Jesus and they've suffered because of it. But I've seen them finish the race. And it gives me encouragement saying, you know what? That is something that I want to be said to be true of me. I believe these that the world was unworthy of serve as an example to us how we ought to live our lives for Jesus. With there being nothing to hold us back. Can I tell you, if there is a cost that is too high of a price for you to pay when it comes to following Jesus, it will find you out. I think a lot of the times we'll say, you know what, I like the idea of Jesus. I like the, I like the things that he has to say. You know what, I want to say yes to him. I want to follow Jesus. I want to I wanna, I wanna be a Christian. I want to follow him closely. I want to love him. I'll surrender almost everything to him. I'll give him most of my life. But these little areas and these pieces, you know what? Jesus, can I just have that? Can I just have this little part of covetousness in my heart that I, I still, I'm still not ready to give up? Maybe there's just this little aspect of my life, of, uh, of maybe, maybe there's this lust that I, that I still have that I'm just not willing to give you, Lord. Maybe I'm not willing to give you my, my addictions over here because you know what? I really like those cravings of the flesh, and, 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 but, but everything else you can have. Friends, if there is a cost that is too high for you to pay in following Jesus, it will find you out. I believe it will with everything inside of me because I believe it costs us everything to say yes to Jesus. I realize that that doesn't actually preach as easy as uh, the, the gift of salvation is free and all you have to do is say yes to Jesus and, and believe in his name and then everything's going to be easy and everything's going to be free. 
Guys, make no mistake. I believe that Jesus purchased our salvation on the cross. I believe that, yes, it is easy to come to him. It is easy to say yes to him. Easy to embrace the gift of following Jesus. Easy to embrace salvation. There's nothing I could have ever do. There's nothing I could do to earn it. But I believe the invitation uh, from salvation into following Jesus closely is one that will cost you everything. Unless you're ready to lose your life, you will never find it. I didn't say that that's the words of Jesus, but it's a beautiful exchange. 100% worth it. And that is what the author of Hebrews is trying to remind these Jewish people that felt like, hey, we found the Messiah. We said yes to the Messiah. Why are things still hard? Why are things still difficult? Why are we still being killed for our faith? Is it not true? Is it, just a, is it just a bunch of BS? I, I don't know. And the author of Hebrews is reminding them it is worth it. Others have endured. And Jesus himself suffered and endured for your sake. You know that it's Easter. I realize I'm supposed to be preaching an Easter message. I am. This is probably the most Easter Easter message I've ever preached. I remembered that it was Easter this week. It's happened before where I didn't. But this this part of the the scripture here that I love uh, it's honestly one of my favorite scriptures in the entirety of the New Testament where it tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter. He's the one that he's initiated it, and he will see it to completion. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. I don't don't think I need to uh, let anybody know that What Jesus did at Calvary, Roman crucifixion, was a brutal act. I'm not going to try to try to try to go too far down that road this morning, um, just because uh, it's brutal, and we know that we know that without a shadow of a doubt. It was also considered one of the most shameful ways to die. I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was truly no more shameful way to die than on a cross via Roman crucifixion. You see, he was stripped down, he was beaten, he was cursed, he was mocked, he was spit upon, he was insulted. Then he was forced to carry a cross naked to Golgotha where they put nails through his hands and through his feet and hung him upon a cross. And it wasn't an instant death. It was one where he suffered agonizingly for hours as people would still walk by and mock him there as he hung upon the cross. As there was this ironic, insulting label above the cross that said, King of kings and Lord of lords. And people would cry out to him, If you are the Messiah, if you really are the King of kings, then come down and save yourself. And he could have, but he wasn't interested in saving himself. He was interested in saving you. 
And so he stayed upon that cross, enduring shame, enduring mockery, all the while despising it, wearing a crown of thorns that was shoved in his skull, a horrific way to die. Abandoned by his closest friends and followers. Suffering at the hands of the very people he came to save. But he knew that it had to be that way, so he chose to endure. He willingly went to the cross for your sake and for my sake. But there's always been this, this, this part of this verse where it says that he scorned, he despised its shame. Jesus' death on the cross holds more shame than just being a humiliating way to die. When he, when he despises the shame of the cross, when he scorns the shame of the cross, it wasn't so much that he was concerned that he was naked and dying in front of people. But we have to understand that the weight of sin was placed upon the cross that day. The shame of every wrong thing in humanity was placed upon our Savior's shoulders as he bore them on the cross in our place. Have you guys ever felt the shame of doing something wrong and being found out? Just, just very simple. I'm, I'm, we've all experienced shame. I remember uh, being younger and I had stolen uh, a little toy. I don't even know what it was, but from this little yard sale thing that was happening in the apartment complex. And, you know, I thought it was going to be fun. And I thought I was five years old. It's one of my earliest cognitive memories. And I thought it was going to be fun. I went and hid in the stairwell, stairwell, stairwell and was playing with it. And uh, I was trying to have fun with it, but I felt this guilt. I felt this shame that I knew I'd done something wrong. And then this man came around the corner that knew I had stolen it and uh, began to just ask me, where did you get that? And I remember this immense shame coming over me, this guilt that, that was weighing me down. And, you know, I confess, I'm five years old. Yes, I did it. <laughs> At least I didn't try to lie about that. Um, anyway, kids lie about the funniest things. Anyway, not part of my message today. But Jesus, the perfect, blameless Lamb of God, as he died on the cross, he took on the guilt of sinful humanity, the shame of our sin, the enormous shame of sin was placed upon the cross as well. And yet Jesus endures it with joy. Because it's the truth when I tell you that it was our sin, it was my sin that caused Jesus to go to the cross. That's why I don't make a, that's why I think it's important that we don't make light of sin, especially as those of us that are trying to follow Jesus, that have said yes to Jesus. Because when we begin to make light of sin and consider it not that big of a deal, and we say, you know what, Jesus died for it, we make little of our Savior. We make little of his sacrifice. Jesus died so that we could be holy with him. But we look at this, 
We look at the weight of shame. We look at the weight of sin hung upon the perfect, blameless Lamb of God. And it says that he endures this horrific thing with joy. It says, for the joy set before me, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. Was Jesus just like a glutton for punishment? No. There was nothing enjoyable about a Roman crucifixion. There was nothing enjoyable about him hanging up on the cross. There was nothing enjoyable about that act of his death. What he was looking for was past that. And he was looking at humanity. And he was looking at you. And he was looking at me thinking that someday there could be a way for me to have right relationship with them once again. And he says, I want them. That is what's going to bring me joy. That is what's going to bring my father joy. So I'm willing to go through and do whatever it takes to have that. Worth, value, beauty is all determined by the extent someone will go to possess it. When Jesus looks at you and when he looks at me, he says, there's nothing that I'm willing to withhold in order to have them. And he proved it for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love that. We've been in the midst of this sermon series. It's my introduction. But we've been in the midst of this sermon series on the kingdom of heaven, the parables of Jesus. Where we've been looking at what Jesus has talked about and how he describes the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 13 We see a lot of different parables that describe the kingdom of God. But I'm just going to look at one today. Matthew 13, 44, it says again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Following one is a similar story with a with a merchant that finds this pearl of great price and he goes and sells everything that he has in order to obtain that pearl. And the traditional interpretation of this scripture, and I think it's very fitting even with what we're reading here in the book of Hebrews, is that in Jesus, when we find what Jesus has for us, there should be nothing that holds us back from possessing Jesus. If it means leaving friends, if it means leaving family, if it means forsaking all the wealth of this world, then it's worth it still. If it means suffering, if it means turning your back on all the pleasures of this life, it is still always going to be worth it. It is not a bad deal. But a number of years ago, I was reading this biography from this little British lady that traveled to Hong Kong and lived in the slums of the walled city in Hong Kong, working with drug addicts and prostitutes, leading them to Jesus without any kind of seminary background, Without the, the, an enormous amount of monetary support, she simply was just reaching people for Jesus. Very inspiring story from a lady named Jackie Pollinger. She wrote a, a biography called Chasing the Dragon. I would encourage you to read it, but 
in one of these accounts, she would, she would simply start these Bible studies with drug addicts and with prostitutes and gangbangers in, in the walled city there in Hong Kong. And as, uh, as these new believers would start reading scripture for the very first time, she would have them lead the Bible studies. And she said there was always these off-the-wall, bonkers things that were completely theologically inaccurate that they would spear off, uh, spurt off, and she would have to kind of come alongside them and bring correction and bring guidance. But there was this one occasion where, uh, where this one gentleman was set to lead the devotional that day, and they were in Matthew chapter 13. And so what she would do, she'd just give him a verse of scripture and said, this is your verse of scripture. I want you to tell us what it means. And he, he read the scripture and he talks about how he was the treasure hidden in the field. And he starts talking about how Jesus went and sold everything that he had and gave up everything that he had to dig him out of the dirt and clean him up because he wanted him. And I've never, never ever been, to read, been able to read this parable the same way since I heard that story because contextually, I think it makes the most sense. I mean, if you're thinking about it, there's nothing that you can do to buy salvation. There's nothing that you can do to earn right standing with God. You don't have enough money to be able to purchase a seat at the wedding table. You could go sell everything and it still would not be enough. But what we see here is that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And it says that a man, for his joy over it, went and sold everything that he had. He went and gave everything that he could possibly give in order to obtain the field. And I believe that's what Jesus did on Calvary for you and I. I believe that's what he did on a cross for you and I because he says, I have great joy over you and I want to be with you and I want to have relationship with you. So instead of you trying to figure it all out and never succeeding, I'm going to do what has to be done and give myself for you because you're of great worth and value to me. And so we see Jesus step into humanity and give all that he could possibly give as a demonstration of his love for us, for us to be with him where he is. There's no greater miracle than that. There's no greater story than that. You can't top that. There's not going to be a movie or a blockbuster that is better than that. <laughs> because it's true. If you've ever struggled with your identity, if you've ever struggled with your self-worth of feeling valued or feeling wanted, I want to tell you right now, there was a God that saw something in you that he went to the cross that he said, I have to have them. For the joy set before him. I've once heard it defined that the gospel is the invitation to believe the audacious statement that you are the joy that's set before him. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. 
If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.